I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello, hello, and happy new year. Hope you've had a wonderful, restful holiday and had some delicious food. I, for one, spent the first week of the holidays sick in bed with the flu, womp womp, but caught up with all the fun the following week. Been having tons of amazing home-cooked Chinese food. My dad is an incredible chef. Coming into the holidays, I had these big plans to make a ton of content, film some Instagram reels, record like five episodes, and that kind of all went out the window. But that's okay. Over the years, I've learned to value progress over perfection and still going to be here learning about how to source food that's better for you and better for the planet. So if you're game for that, you're in the right place. So this is the second year in a row that we're doing a fish episode for New Year's. There's a Chinese proverb that says, nian nian you yu, which literally means, may you have fish every year. But the word for fish is a pun, and it also means, may you have leftovers every year. So in the spirit of prosperity and yummy food, today we have Chef Sarah Haman. She's a two-time James Beard Rising Star semifinalist, and she's most known for competing on Top Chef Portland. Today, Sarah is reinventing canned fish with her company, Tiny Fish Co. So instead of the plain old canned tuna or sardines, think sustainable bycatch species with elevated flavors, like octopus with lemon and dill or rockfish in sweet soy sauce. I've tried some. It is really good just alone with simple rice and veggies. Or Sarah makes these really fun recipes on her Instagram, like this clam dip. So good. Go check that out. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for more fun, regenerative foodie episodes like this. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Sarah Hammond. Thank you for having me. This is great. I love talking about fish, so. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We've got an hour of fish to talk about. Absolutely. Um, and I do want to call out, I think you're our first James Beard award-winning chef on the show. So, so. Well, I never, I never won one. Friends. I was just nominated. <laughs> you were, oh, okay, you were nominated. My bad. Yeah, but still. That's okay. <laughs> on a nom- you were on a very special list. So (laughs) humbled to be in your presence. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start off by talking about your background. You're trained as a chef. For folks that aren't familiar, you've done a lot of really amazing work at some really high-end restaurants. And I do want to hear about your time in Spain because I hear that's been really influential on your work. Why don't you give us a little bit of background of like how you got to where you are today and maybe some fun stories from Spain. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I actually started traveling to Spain when I was in high school. Funny enough, when chat rooms were really popular, (laughs) my dad had met a lady online and she lived in Spain. So we would travel to Spain when I was in high school. And then the plan was that after I graduated, he was going to retire and move there. So I said, well, that sounds like a great plan for me too. (laughs) So I've actually uh, had quite a history with Spain and Spanish food and conservas. Um, I spent about a year in the south of Spain after high school. And then I came back to the U.S. and thought, well, 
regular school is very easy for me. I want to do something that's hard. And cooking was something that always, I think I was always drawn to it because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. We didn't go on vacation. We didn't do traveling. So for me, going out to eat at a sushi restaurant, even if it's not authentic, even if it's like the worst sushi ever, because I grew up in the suburbs in San Diego. Um, for me, that was the way that I could escape and that I could travel and I could learn about these different cultures. So travel and food was always really, really important to me. So I decided to do the culinary school thing. Pretty much right off the bat, I was going to school full-time, working full-time, which quite honestly, if you can't manage a 12 to 15 hour day, you really shouldn't be in the restaurant industry anyways. So it was a really good, I guess, training session for me to get into the restaurant industry. I moved from San Diego up to San Francisco when I was like just 22 and kind of just started working. I put my head down and I worked as hard as I possibly could. And then I got the itch again to go traveling. And of course, I love Spain so much. My thought was, I'm going to go on that San Pellegrino 50 best restaurant list in the world. And I'm going to just email every restaurant that seemed interesting. My first choice was Asador Echevarri in the Basque region of Spain. And they happened to be the first ones to contact me back and said, yeah, absolutely. Come work with us for a whole season. So I did that, crazily enough. (laughs) And then that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to, I had already been working at a restaurant in San Francisco. It was celebrating the simplicity of food and how easy it could be. And we did whole animal butchery. And the chef at the time, Brandon Jew, was, um, he has Mr. Jews in San Francisco now. He was really intrigued and fascinated with kind of like the Chez Panisse vibe, everything very simple very fresh though, the best ingredients. So very locally sourced, delicious ingredients, but very simply prepared. And I know David Chang makes fun of it all the time. And it's just a fig on a plate, but it's the best fig that we could possibly source and find, you know, drizzled with the best olive oil and the best sea salt. I was already in this kind of world of embracing very simple food. And when I traveled to the Basque region and worked at this world-renowned restaurant that I think was 14 at the time, they did the same thing. They just sourced really, really local things and did it really, really well on the grill. So for instance, when they serve prawns, they make sure that the prawns are stored in salt water so they don't turn black at all. They're basically kept alive until they're put directly on the grill and they're served just like that just grilled prawns that's it and they're the best prawns you've ever had in your life and it's because there's this dedication to finding the best product and really finding the best product is sourcing as close to where you're actually located so you don't have the manhandling of you know traveling with that product it stays fresher you don't have to freeze it all that good stuff So again, it just kind of reinforced that even a best restaurant that's recognized in the entire world by this organization as being a best restaurant in the world can do things very, very simply and very easily, maybe not easily, but (laughs) very simply (laughs) Um, and, and people recognize it. 
So when I came back from my travels in Spain and cooking there, I returned to San Francisco and started getting all these offers. Hey, be the chef of this place, be the chef of this place. So that's when I started kind of putting that actual executive chef hat on. And I just kind of stayed in the world of simplicity. I'm drawn to, for instance, Japanese food because of that, because it is very simple and you're celebrating these really pristine ingredients as opposed to manipulating the food beyond recognition, you know, where you look at the plate and you're like, that's supposed to be a broccoli. I don't, that doesn't even look like a broccoli. You know, if I, right. if I cook you a meal, that broccoli looks like, you know what it is. But when you eat it, you're like, oh, I didn't actually like that vegetable before. Maybe you're experiencing it in a different way because of the way that I've sourced it or the way that I've decided to, you know, maybe cook it really low and slow on the grill. So it's about, I guess, preserving the integrity of an ingredient and really harnessing like what is so delicious about this and how do I bring those characteristics out to really showcase and highlight the best parts about it. Mm, I love that. This is like tribute to my mom's cooking is like mm-hmm. her condiments and sauces are just like salt and oil. <laughs> yeah. But I like to say it's because the place that my family's from in China, it's the province of Zhejiang and they call it the land of fish and rice. There's a lot of agriculture and farming there and we're also close to the water so we get a lot of fresh fish. And so the cooking style is like super light and you really don't need to season the ingredients that much just because Absolutely. everything is so fresh. Absolutely. I think it's really great. Side note, there's an incredible YouTube series about Chinese fermentation and preservation. Ooh. I think it's called I forget. I it's like the art of Chinese preservation or something. It's a it's a short little YouTube mini series. It's incredible. You should check it out. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Well, speaking mm-hmm. of preservation, I was thinking about, you know, Tiny Fish Co. and what you're doing now is like sort of the opposite of fresh, right? I, but I mean, you're yes. still doing something really special with canned fish, which you think of as like you know, this like traditionally like pretty affordable, like lowbrow food. And I'll let you say more about it, but how Tiny Fish kind of came about and what you're working on now. Yeah. So I, you know, obviously in Spain, Portugal, Mediterranean, they love their fish and they love preserving their fish. And so while it seems a little kind of the opposite, that I would be really intrigued with sourcing these fresh ingredients, not messing with them. And now I'm doing this preservation product. It actually has a lot of similarities. So the first thing that I wanted to do when I embarked on this journey was I really wanted to do the same thing that I do as a chef, which is source really locally, as close to where I am located as humanly possible. So all of the fish that I source is exclusive to the Pacific Northwest, Northern California, up to Alaska. That's it. In travel, your product suffers regardless, you know? So the closer to the source of where I'm getting everything manufactured, the better. So that's one kind of parallel that you can draw from those. The other thing is that I really want to embrace the art of preserving that's celebrated throughout the world. And when you do preserve a vegetable, a fish, again, you're taking the really delicious, tasty aspects of that ingredient and you're thinking to yourself, how can I save this for later? 
so that's the way I kind of think about it is sure it's not fresh and I'm adding seasonings to it but my biggest goal I guess is to showcase the abundance of the fish that we have in the Pacific Northwest how do I share that with everyone in the U.S. without having to you know like I said take that fresh fish and then freeze it and then put it on a truck or put it on a plane. So this is my way of saying, hey, I want to keep what's local to me. What I know is delicious. These are the best mussels that I've ever had, you know, at least in the U.S. I think they're the best mussels. And I'm going to share those with you in a way that makes sense to me. So I source them very locally. I get everything manufactured very locally. I take a lot of time and effort and care and developing a recipe and then I get to share it to the east coast or the south who might not be familiar with the ingredients that we have up here. I think like the special thing about your product is being able to export your flavors as a chef across you know the country wherever you ship without losing that integrity of the ingredient. Absolutely. And this is more a question but typically I think of canning and preservation as a seasonality thing. So, you know, you're only going to get harvest at certain times of year and preserve those things for later. And maybe we can talk about the species that you chose to work with. Like are the fisheries typically seasonal? Yeah. Um, So for instance, I use giant Pacific octopus. Giant Pacific octopus is a bycatch when you go out and you fish for sablefish or black cod you put out these giant pots and sometimes a giant Pacific octopus will swim into the pot. You can absolutely put them back into the ocean, but if they are injured, they most likely won't survive. So what the fisheries do is they bring those in and then you've got people like me who will buy those and make delicious things out of them. I'm going into production again for my company and I can't actually get octopus until January Um, because Mm. like you said, it is very seasonal. They go out in January up in Alaska for the black cod to put the pots out. They're going to go back and that's when I can potentially get my giant Pacific octopus. The other, you know, caveat is that because it's a bycatch, it's not guaranteed that I'm going to get that. So while I need to have a certain minimum, I might not make that. So I just need to kind of roll the dice and and figure it out. So say in January comes up and they don't have enough octopus because they didn't plan for the bycatch. What do you do in that case? What do I do? Well, then I talk to I talk to other fishermen. Yeah, I know. I try to okay, okay. Fish. So you try to source yeah. the octopus elsewhere. Yeah, I try, to, I try to use small fisheries and smaller fishing vessels. I go through a nonprofit organization. They help connect me with fisheries and fishermen. It's called Positively Ground Fish. They don't necessarily help me out on the octopus front. Um, but what's great is it's hard on me. I don't just hit a button and say, yes, please, I would like to order 2,000 pounds of octopus. I have to actually do a lot of work on my end. You know, if they can't meet my minimum, that means I have to go hustle and ask a bunch of other people, hey, 
do you have bycatch? Do you have bycatch? Do you have bycatch? And then at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, then I just need to talk to my manufacturer and say, hey, I couldn't get this. Can you just produce, you know, whatever my, this minimum is, can you produce for that for me instead? And I'll make up the cost wherever else. Yeah. It's a lot more work on my end to not just get farmed fish from wherever. But to me, it's more important that people understand, like I said, I'm working towards this idea of sustainability. Tuna and salmon, they absolutely can be harvested sustainably. They can be raised sustainably. But my thing is, hey, it's delicious. It's really, really expensive. Even halibut, really, really expensive. It's only going to continue to get more expensive the more that we treat it basically like steak. I think of it like steak. You know, we had this huge push. You shouldn't be eating steak every day. You shouldn't be eating steak every day. It's the same with those big fish. You shouldn't be eating those every day. Um, And I don't think we think about it that way. I think we think, well, we're choosing fish, so it's less of a carbon footprint than, say, beef or land animals. It's more sustainable. Sure, it is. But at the end of the day, what's going to happen is every single year we have limits set on these wild-caught salmon and wild-caught tuna. And those limits are decreasing every single year. So that means that when fishermen go out to commercially fish these fish, they can't actually catch as many. So the price goes a lot higher. And the price of, say, rockfish, which is very abundant, is a lot lower because there's no demand. So fishermen have to make the choice. Are we going to go out and catch a ton of rockfish and potentially not make our money back because we can only charge, you know, two, three dollars a pound? Or are we just gonna go out and get salmon? We charge fifteen dollars a pound. It makes more sense financially for them to go out for the salmon. So at a certain point, what's gonna happen is that fisheries aren't even gonna go out for these um I like to call them the figurative tiny fish in the ocean because they're just not gonna make any money. And that's essentially going to throw off the balance in the marine ecosystem. And again, it's just going to continue to raise the price of salmon and tuna. And sure, we can always buy these farmed fish. But if you actually just look at them side by side, you can tell the difference in the color of the flesh. You can tell the difference in the texture of the flesh. You can absolutely tell the difference in the flavor. And the biggest part is that wild caught fish is a regenerative resource, meaning we as humans don't need to like put fish food into the water for them to survive. They regenerate naturally. In a farmed fish scenario, we as humans are adding things to the water to make these fish healthy, to make these fish look like the wild caught fish that we can't commercially fish because our limits are so low. And it's not that I'm against even farmed fish. I only used farmed shellfish. (laughs) It's understanding the logistics and these fine details with regards to these different species and how they're harvested. You know, we go to the fish counter and we look and we say, okay, we want wild caught fish or we want domestically caught fish or we want to make sure that the harvesting methods are sustainable. And it's just taking it one step further and saying, okay, now that we're here, (laughs) let's talk more about domestic fish, for instance. I only use domestic fish because there are in place in every single country fishery management systems. 
And the U.S. happens to have one of the best fisheries management systems in the world. Basically, what that means is that we have these rules for fisheries and fishing vessels saying you can fish in this area, but you can't fish in this area. And for the U.S. in particular, I think it's only like 10% of the ocean that we can commercially fish in because we are allowing the other 90% to regenerate and to kind of balance out that ecosystem. The more that we continue to overconsume, <laughs> the less those limits are going to be, you know, that 10% might shrink down to 5%. And again, we have this massive increase in price and the fish that we're eating, then what's going to happen? People are going to resort to those, you know, farmed chicken land animals that absolutely destroy the environment. So for me, it's about educating on diversifying your diet. Whether that means diversifying the fish you eat or even just saying, hey, I eat meat once a week, I eat fish once a week, and I eat plant the rest of the week. I think mm -hmm. diversification with, with everything really is kind of the key to life and happiness and nutrition and health. And that not only goes for our bodies, but it goes for the marine ecosystem. It goes for, you know, the land environment, making sure that we really are really embracing every aspect of that ecosystem, whatever ecosystem that might be. For sure. And I think in addition to diversifying, it's also knowing the land that you live on, right? And that land Absolutely. includes water too. Absolutely. We talk a lot about regenerative farming on this Absolutely. show. And, you know, fisheries are so much a part of that as well. Not to knock on farmed fish, <laughs> but a little bit. I posted on Instagram about how farmed salmon can get lice. And like, it's all safe to eat and everything, but it is right. just gross to think about <laughs> that like, yeah. oh man, like these fish are packed together so much mm -hmm. so that they're growing lice. And what they'll do is either deploy, funny enough, like tiny, like small fish to like mm -hmm. eat the lice off the salmon, or mm -hmm. they'll put the salmon through this giant vacuum tube to like suck off all the lice and it's just it's kind of silly and it's not fun to think about that like oh man right. the salmon I'm eating like has to go through this stuff absolutely so, so farmed fish I think it's just this hard thing to understand a huge thing that I use my platform for right now is educating people about the difference between for instance farmed fish and farmed shellfish so farmed fish mm. requires that input and like you said sometimes they get lice and you have to as humans we have to interfere with that the difference between farmed shellfish is that there is no human input we don't put anything in the water all we do is we put the shellfish they're called seeds um we put the seeds into the water and they grow so for instance mussels they are filter feeders meaning you put the baby mussel into a big net and then you put it into the water you attach it to these kind of depends the farm that i use has these wooden planks almost in the middle of where the river kind of meets the ocean and the mussels then take in the water and they take in all of the nutrients in the water the proteins and they take in the carbon and then they excrete oxygen back into the water. So that is how they filter it. In fact, mussels, very cool. They can filter E. coli out of water 
efficiently and we can still eat them and not get sick. How incredible is that? Huh. It's wow. really, really cool. So part of what makes the waters in the Pacific Northwest so pristine and clean is because we can have a huge shellfish industry, whether that be farmed or wild. Another thing, especially with mussels, so all the protein that they take in, a protein is converted into carbon and that's what builds their shells. Those shells then create, you know, if you've ever seen those clusters of mussels kind of on rocks or on the sides of the shore, one, it helps prevent erosion. Um, we have lots of erosion problems as we have these crazy climate situations with warming of the planet. So mussels actually help prevent erosion and they also provide a nice little internal world for tiny little creatures to live in basically so it creates a habitat for tiny little creatures it filters the water and it helps with erosion so i'm on both sides of the fence farmed shellfish fantastic wild shellfish fantastic farmed fish mm, depends <laughs> you know mm, not as much of a fan so all the fish that i use is wild caught all the shellfish that i use is farmed that's just how i do things <laughs> Have you heard of? It's called the Billion Oyster Project. Um, it's in New York, New York City, where they put a bunch of oysters along the New York City Harbor to protect. Basically, like instead of putting those breakwaters and like putting down human infrastructure, they're using oysters to help alleviate yep. against floods and rising sea yep. water. It's that same concept of helping with erosion, and it creates this natural barrier the best part about it is that we're letting nature take care of itself. <laughs> you know, really, we're kind of helping protect and fix the damage that we did as humans by introducing the species back into the water and saying, we took you out so long ago, and then we didn't put you back in. And now we're going to put you back in and, and kind of let you work your magic, which is really, really nice. Mm, I love that. It's almost like really humbling in a way how we're taking a step back and saying, okay, like we are maybe not the best species to tackle mm -hmm. all these problems in mm -hmm. nature. Like mm -hmm. let's let our Absolutely. other friends to do the work for us. Well, and that's why, you know, with our fisheries management system here in the U.S., we allow so much of the ocean. We have all this open space that we're not allowed to fish in. And we're not allowed to fish in it because we're letting the environment rejuvenate itself. We're saying, hands off, get out of here. No more fishing. Don't mess with it. We need for nature to kind of heal itself because we're not helping mm. things as humans. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately... Yeah because you know carbon emissions and whatever even though we might be letting off certain areas in the ocean and not fishing there it's all connected you know the carbon emissions and climate change and all these you know floods or tsunami and whatever's happening that's also not helping but <laughs> at least here in the US we have some sort of way to at least encourage the regenerative nature of wild fish that we have in abundance, in abundance. That's why I want to use stuff like rockfish, sablefish. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a ton of that. Like I said, I work with this nonprofit organization called Positively Groundfish. And groundfish is another word for what we would call trash fish. They are fish that live a little bit closer to the sea floor. A lot of these fish are 
processed and made into fish meal, fish pellets, not even for human consumption. A lot of the fish that we get, like black cod, most of it is exported to Asia. We don't even eat it here on the West Coast. We don't even eat it in the U.S. And again, it's those carbon emissions, that carbon footprint. It's a huge reason why not only am I focusing on sustainable species, but the location is very, very important to me. I wanted to open a business. Just opening a business, you're increasing your carbon footprint tenfold. That's not lost on me. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to do this in the most thoughtful way possible. And to me, that is saying, okay, I know that my carbon footprint is much larger, but how can I successfully run a company with the idea that I want to have as minimal input as possible? I don't want to source Atlantic fish. I live on the West Coast. I get my product manufactured on the West Coast. If I got fish from the Atlantic, it would have to be, you know, frozen or refrigerated and then freighted over here. The energy, the carbon footprint on that freight is massive. And then I get it manufactured and then it goes out nationwide. To me, it's so important to, to look at every step in the process, not just unharvesting fish in a sustainable way. There's so much more to the process than that. You know, tin fish is very popular now. And I think what people don't understand is look at the box, look at the package and and see what it says. If it's saying that, hey, this is a sustainably caught fish, great. That's a sustainably caught fish on the Atlantic coast. It's being processed in the West Coast. You know what I'm saying? And then it's like, Mm -hmm. is that product actually sustainable by the time it gets to you? Or has the carbon footprint of just the travel of that made it completely that that sustainable claim means nothing now, (laughs) you know, because it's traveled so much. The carbon footprint on just that one can of fish is much higher. It's things we don't think about. And part of what I want to do is educate people to kind of understand that a little bit more. We're all guilty of it, you know? (laughs) We live in a consumerist society. Yeah, it's a process for sure. It's true. The way I think about it is you're offering, you know, as a product, as a business, at least you're being thoughtful about the life cycle Mm -hmm. emissions. and, And even if you're not there today, if I, as a consumer, choose your product over a conventional canned fish, like right. that's displacing other carbon emissions. I'm curious. I mean, obviously, you're a small business. There's limits to what you can do right now. When you work with your manufacturer, what are some of maybe the trade-offs that you have to make when it comes to either sustainability or, you know, the flavors? Because you obviously want everything to be top quality, right? Yeah. So this morning, for instance, um, I I am a small business. I make the spice mixes. I have a product with mirin and gluten-free soy sauce mixture. So I make the spice mixes. I make the wet mixes. I could absolutely hire a truck to like freight all of that up to the cannery. But instead, I actually transport that myself because I want to make sure that I am One, not a part of this crazy, weird carbon footprint. And obviously I'm driving up there. You know, I woke up at four this morning to get up there, but I basically make it worth it for myself. So when I go up there, I make sure that I'm doing R&D on my new products. I make sure that I'm 
taste testing things. And for me, it's about making the most of my time up there. I'm a one person operation. This is not a huge corporation. I do as much as humanly possible by myself. I really, really try to work with the manufacturer. My minimum order is crazy, like 10,000 units. For a small business, I've got four different flavors, you know, (laughs) 10,000 units is a lot of unit to go through and to sell. And that's 10,000 of each or 10,000 total? 10,000 of each. Um, It's pretty wild and crazy. Yes. But the good thing is that it's kind of the same, like when you go to the grocery store and you buy in the bulk section, you can purchase things with less packaging. That kind of helps a little bit. It doesn't help my bank account, (laughs) but it definitely helps with packaging, for instance, less plastic involved. That's another consideration I I take. You know, I'm making these spice mixes. Cool. I don't want to open a ton of plastic containers of paprika. So how can I possibly source 80 pounds of paprika? What's the best way to do that? Should I get that freighted to the cannery? Should I get it freighted to my house? You know, it's how logistically to do it in the, um, not the easiest way on me. (laughs) Obviously I woke up at 4 a.m. But it's how do I do it in the way that's most eco-conscious and taking into account the garbage and the trash that happens. And it's going to cost me more money at the end of the day. And I think that's what a lot of people don't maybe understand as much is that me being thoughtful and being conscious cost me time and cost me money to do that mm. for me to say hey you know to the a spice shop or you know a wholesale spice person say hey I'd like you to make a custom mix for me they're gonna say great we'll make a custom mix for you it's gonna cost you this much and I could do it myself it's gonna be much cheaper but for me, it's not the time, it's not the labor, it's about the packaging that it comes in. That's what I'm concerned about. Mm. I make less money, absolutely. I make less money, I can make more money. I know how to make more money, but I don't need millions. To me, I didn't grow up with money. You know, uh, the difference between $1 million and $5 million is not, I've never even, that number, I can't even conceptualize that number, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not about the money for me. I need to survive. That's about it. I have more time now. I'm not locked into a restaurant. To me, that is worth it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is that ultimately why you decided to transition out of restaurant working? Is like, yeah, like, I mean, it sounds really tiring, like 12 to 14 hours Mm -hmm. a day, like on your feet, where you burnt out from that and wanted to do your own thing. Definitely. I think um, there was a couple of things, you know, obviously it's really, really hard to have any sort of personal life or anything when you're working nights all the time. The restaurant industry, especially the back of the house restaurant industry, I think it calls to people who are very type A personality. We are very passionate about what we do. When we do anything, we do it 150%. There's nothing in between. It's zero or 150 that's it. And because of that, you burn yourself out. It's really hard to find balance. If the dishwasher doesn't show up, you're getting the phone call. If you can't find anyone to go in, you go in. It's not like an office job where someone calls in sick and they're just, well, they're just sick. That's not how it works in a restaurant. If someone calls in sick, you're down a person and the restaurant can't function. And so you need to fix that as the chef or as the person in charge. 
So there's that aspect of it. And this might just be a personal thing with me, but I felt like people just, I was just the chef and not just a chef, you know, chefs are great and creative, but no one really thought of me as anything else other than, well, you're really good in the kitchen. And it kind of defined me as a human and me as a person, like I'm a chef, that's it. Like, that's what I do in my personal life and my professional life. That's it. But there is a lot more to me than just that. I can run a business. You know, I, I taught myself how to make and edit videos for Instagram. You know, I taught myself how to do accounting, keep my books in the last couple of years. And I have a lot more to offer than just a plate of food that's delicious. I felt very pigeonholed in this position where I wasn't able to express and show those other sides of me as a person. So part of me wanting to branch out was to kind of explore some different areas and facets of the food industry. And another one is everyone's a food critic these days. Everyone has something to say. And when you are working, you know, you get to work at six or seven in the morning and you're not leaving until nine or 10 or midnight. You put your whole life into what you have. You have no personal life. And then someone's going to come in and have a bad day and tell you your food sucks or, you know, write a bad review. That's why there's so many mental health issues in the restaurant industry is because I can't tell you how many times I'm on my hour 12 and I work in an open kitchen and I have some patron coming in and saying to me, you should smile more when you cook. And I'm like, I'm sorry, do I go to your office and tell you? Yeah, and tell you to like as you're looking at your computer screen, you need to smile while you're working. Like this is my job, and it's not that I'm not having fun, but I'm focusing. You know, right? Um, <laughs> it's it's just more like you can't just be in a kitchen and cook food. It's like your entertainment for people as well. Mm-hmm. It burns you out. Absolutely, it burns you out. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to kind of <laughs> go about why I wanted to escape from restaurants at least for a little bit, but a, a lot of it was just to recharge myself, mm-hmm. to prove to myself I could run a business, to get a little bit more perspective on creative aspect and how I deal with that myself. It's a very vulnerable space. People don't understand that it's my ideas, it's my recipes. I work really hard on it. It's this creative space. It's like an artist presenting their work and then getting an art critique and it's not that I can't take constructive feedback but to a certain degree things are very you know subjective (laughs) some people like saltier Mm -hmm. food some people don't some people don't like spicy food everyone has an opinion and sometimes you get to a point and just you're like "I, I can't do this anymore I need to take a break I have to take a break I always tell people if I if I had money I didn't have any time because I was working so much. And if I had time, I had no money because the amount of hours you work and how much you get paid don't align by any means. I think it's getting better, but with a looming recession and inflation and food prices going up, I don't think that consumers are ready to pay what they need to in order for that disparity between hours worked and how much you should be making in a restaurant. I mean, I've worked at so many 
privately independently owned restaurants where my cooks could make more at like a in and out they could literally make more money working at a fast food restaurant than they could at my privately owned restaurant where we're making this high quality food for people spending hundreds of dollars per person to eat there and wow. that's a really really sad thing to think about <laughs> quite honestly that is really sad and then you get like Yelp reviews that are yelling at you. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, there's so many great things about the restaurant industry too, like family, because you go through all this struggle together. When you work in a restaurant, that's like your family. I haven't gone home for the holidays since my early 20s when I started working in restaurants because to me, well, one, you got, you always have to work on the holidays, um, but you know, it's, it's really becomes your family. You get to know people a lot. And I think you get to meet a large variety of people than say just like your average office job where you you work a nine to five. To me, I'm like, yeah, that's boring. Everyone's kind of the same. (laughs) (laughs) Work in a restaurant, you'll meet some really interesting people. (laughs) That's what I've heard. Everyone has tattoos and you don't know who's gone to jail. I don't know anything about tattoos. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) I hope you feel appreciated enough that you have the talent to put together a meal because that I feel like is such a like lost skill, not lost skill, but underappreciated skill. You know, I think that's why Blue Apron and like home meal kits are so popular is because like younger gen like millennials and gen z's just like don't know our way around the kitchen and that's such a valuable skill to be able to feed and nourish ourselves like i think that's like part of our disconnect with you know eating diverse foods eating off the land is like first off like we don't even know how to make ourselves like proper right absolutely Um, when i grew up we went out to dinner maybe once a month that was it but it was always home-cooked meals and my mom wasn't the best cook but if I wanted something, I would have to make it for myself. Whatever. Quesadilla. Great. I have to make that for myself. And I see these TikTok videos and I'm like, do people really not how to bo- know how to boil an egg? Is that like a thing? Really? You don't know how to boil an egg. This is insane to me. You know? <laughs> it's just, it's so strange to me that people can grow up and just not know how to cook and I think during the pandemic a lot of people had to learn a little bit about it but it still shocks me when I go on TikTok I'm like really how does this have 100 million likes or something I'm like it's just how to cut a watermelon how do you know how to cut a watermelon (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh when we first spoke you had mentioned how most of the CPG products out there on grocery store shelves are made by marketing people and, you know, business consultants and like people who are thinking about bottom line. And we don't actually have a ton of chefs or creative food people out there making CPG brands. Say a little bit more about that and like why it's important for food people yeah. to get involved in, in products. So I think a nice product of the pandemic has been chefs and restaurateurs, food people realizing that they need to diversify their offerings because we don't know what's going to happen. Now we are seeing a lot more food people creating these CPG products that are finding their way on the shelves of grocery stores. I was pretty shocked, quite honestly, (laughs) to realize and find that out in the last couple of years. As I do my homework, I do my research, I 
I reach out to people, whether that's reaching out on Instagram or, you know, finding these founders and saying, like, how did you create your product? Why did you choose to do this? And most of the time, none of them had any sort of relationship with food. And I thought that was crazy. I was like, wait, so you create a food product, but you have nothing to do with food. That is insane to me because I would never be like, cool, I'm going to like create a shoe line for athletics, you know? And I'm like, I played soccer when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> like I wouldn't know where to start. So it was shocking to me that, well, one, it gave me confidence. I was like, oh, well, if they could do it, I could do it. I know about food, but uh, <laughs> you're like a million steps ahead of them. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I can do this. I'm like, okay, cool. So let me learn about their product. Let me learn about them. And then you start looking at the labels and you're like, okay, but it says like it's sustainable or it's nutritious or whatever. And then you're like, what is it though? And then you realize that so much of what's written on a package is really to trick a consumer into buying it. And hey, I'm guilty of it too. But I'm trying really, really hard to, to make eco-conscious choices and to you know promote sustainable fish and to really educate people on why mussels are great for the environment, for instance. Again, I don't make as much money because of that, but that's not my main concern. You know, I side hustle on side hustle with private chef stuff and private dinners to support mm -hmm. myself because to me, it's more important to be honest with the consumer, just as I would a chef. I've heard about stories, you know, where you look at a menu and the chef has written things that maybe aren't true on the menu. And I just, there's this integrity though, I feel like with 95% of chefs, where when you say this is a local apple from this farm, it really is a local apple from that farm. And I don't think that that happens in the CPG world. I think that we say, this is local. And you're like, it, I mean, it's kind of local, but then you did all of these things or like the seed was formulated by someone who was local and no one's really there to like check up on it. The FDA is not really there to check up on it. If you write something like, hey, this is gluten-free, then absolutely you have to put your nutritional facts on it. But for instance, my products, I don't have to put nutritional facts if I don't want to because I'm not making any claims. It kind of goes back to the same thing with, hey, this is a sustainable product. And then you look at it and go, but is it really sustainable if all of these ingredients are coming from all these places and your carbon footprint is so huge? Like, to, is it now sustainable? I don't really see that. It's marketing tactics of like, we're going to pick this one thing to focus on that is sustainable and we're going to force it down people's throats so that no one asks mm. any questions. But with chefs, I think it's a little bit different. You know, we have our ego, of course. With that comes a lot of things, but with that comes a lot of integrity. And I think that integrity is what's missing a lot in CPG products. So I, I really try to encourage not only consumers to repackages, but people in food and in the food industry to embark on this journey because the more food people that are actually making food for the grocery store shelves, the more high quality, nutritious, delicious food consumers are going to get as opposed to watered down versions of things that are cheaper to produce in mass. So they make more money at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
I can't believe we haven't touched on this yet, but if folks have not seen the Tiny Fish Co. tins, they are super cute. They're like little cartoon. I I love the whole branding around it. Can you talk a bit about the storytelling and the visual brand behind Tiny Fish? Yeah. So ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with preserving things. My grandma... My dad's from the Midwest, and so we would go visit my grandparents. I'd go down to her basement, and she would just have jars and jars of pickles and jams and all these things. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever that you didn't have to refrigerate it. So I'd always kind of been fascinated with preserving and canning. I also, I'm from San Diego area, and every time we would go to San Diego proper, we'd probably go to like Ranch 99, or there's a Japanese market down there called Mitsua. And I would be obsessed with flipping through all the anime magazines and going into the snack aisle. And to me, the snack aisle was the coolest thing ever because you have these brightly colored packages that have these like comic book almost characters on them. And I have no idea what it says. And I have no idea why there's like a funny little frog on the outside because obviously I'm not having like frog snacks but it's so cute and it's eye-catching you know and then of course I grab as much as I can and go to my mom and beg her to buy all of these things for me not even knowing what they are if I'm going to like them but I always had this idea of if I'm going to do a product I really wanted to take after that sort of marketing and branding So when I approached this project and my designer, I said I wanted something like SpongeBob meets anime. Um, So I think they they did a really good job, you know. And and again, it's it's taking the cues from what is already on those grocery store shelves and saying, well, marketing people they try to trick people into buying their product with whatever bright colors or this or that. So I'm gonna do the same. I'm going to take that message because I'm not an idiot. I did my homework and I'm going to force feed people sustainability and teach them (laughs) about filter feeders and teach them about the abundance of fish in the Pacific Northwest. I'm using it as a platform to educate, not to make money. (laughs) Terrible business person, Um, but it's... That's more important to me than making an extra $2 per unit or, you know, whatever it is. So I really wanted to have a product that represented me on the inside and on the outside. And I think that that does that perfectly. Obviously, half of my body is full of tattoos. If you take a look at me, if you know me, and then you look at the package, you're like, ah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I would literally be driving and I pull over and I call my designer and I was, I said, Oh my gosh, we need to have a joke on the box. You know, like when you're a kid, <laughs> you have popsicles, you eat the popsicle, you just joke. It's the coolest thing ever, you know? So for me, it was a very, it's a very personal project. You know, I, I, there's so much is very personal, not just with my connection to the recipes and the fish, but with the actual branding of it. And yeah, I was so nervous to release it into the public because I thought it just looks like a crazy carnival on a box. But then <laughs> like, you know what? I'm kind of a crazy carnival, you know, I'm wild. I'm all over the place. So screw it. This is me. 
it's me through and through. And if people like it, great. And if they don't, that's fine too. No one's ever been like, wow, Sarah, you're so attractive. Everyone's like, oh my God, you're so cute. You're so adorable. So I guess it makes sense that everyone says my products are adorable too. <laughs> there you go. You're bringing kawaii to the canned fish game. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I am so excited to read these jokes. Yeah. I'm excited to try the fish too, but also very excited to, <laughs> to read the jokes. Yes. There's a lot of really fun things in there. Like, for instance, the gooey duck. I don't know why, but I just really think it would be hilarious if our gooey duck was like a Bob Ross theme and it was an artist. <laughs> so, so that's what they did. My my illustrator it. managed to make a gooey duck not look ridiculous as a cartoon and put like a nice cloth of hair on it. And oh. there's a whole art show thing happening on the inside of the box. Yeah, there's just lots of stuff to look at and it's fun. And it's so fun. I've never been really a serious food person you know I didn't want to work in fancy Michelin star restaurants I staged at the French Laundry I was there for two hours and I was like I'm never gonna work here I will finish my stage but I'm never gonna work here because it's not my style it's just too serious I don't take food that seriously and my package says that my package says this is fun. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. It's food. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I'm excited. And I'm sure listeners are excited to check out I your stuff so. too. Um, where can they find you guys and try out your fish? So I'm obviously very, very much in the Pacific Northwest. I'm at all of the bigger regional grocery stores in the Pacific Northwest. I've got eight to 10 retail outlets in the Bay Area. I'm super lucky. I've had retail outlets throughout the nation. I've got a few in LA. I've got some in San Diego. Definitely more on the West Coast. But if you can't find them in a store, you can go online and buy them on the tinyfishco.com. Also, if you join my Substack newsletter, I throw out discount codes pretty much every month. I know the price point on my fancy fish in a can is a little bit high. I get that. And that's because, hey, I'm trying to do everything as responsible as possible. But again, I throw out discount codes because it's not lost on me that spending $15 on a can of fish, that's a hot price. I get that, you know? But it's leading us into this idea that we should be paying more for food, you know? Should we be paying $2, $1 for a can of tuna? That's disrespectful to the fish. It's disrespectful to the fishermen. It's disrespectful to the ocean to value that at 99 cents for a can of bumblebee tuna. You know what I'm saying? You get what you pay for at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You get what you pay for. Get what you pay for. Which is <laughs> She's like, I thought she said she wasn't serious. She's ended on stuff. It's right. a really sad, deep, dark note. <laughs> Well, thanks for spending the morning with us, Sarah. I know you got up at 4 a.m. I hope you take a okay. nap today. But yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I've got, I've got some stuff I gotta do with it. A nap is <laughs> hopefully in the cards. Of course. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>